Part One of Citadel of Lost Ships by Lee Douglas Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Phil Chenever. This story was first published in Planet Stories, March 1943. Part One. Roy Campbell woke painfully. His body made a blind instinctive lunge for the control panel, and it was only when his hand struck the smooth, hard mud of the wall that he realized he wasn't in his ship any longer, and that the space guard wasn't chasing him, their guns hammering death. He leaned against the wall, the perspiration thick on his heavy chest, his eyes wide and remembering. He could feel again as though the running fight were still happening the bucking of his sleek fitz southern beneath the calm control of his hands. He could remember the pencil rays lashing through the night, searching for him, seeking his life. He could recall the tiny prayer that lingered in his memory as he fought so skillfully, so dangerously, to evade the relentless pursuer. Then there was a hazy period, when a blasting cannon had twisted his ship like a wind-tossed leaf and his head had smashed cruelly against the control panel. And then the slinking minutes when he had raced for safety, and then the sodden hours when sleep was the only thing in the universe that he craved. He sank back on the hide-frame cot with something between a laugh and a curse. He was sweating, and his wiry body twitched. He found a cigarette lit it on the second try and sat still, listening to his heartbeat slow down. He began to wonder, then, what had wakened him. It was night, the deep indigo night of Venus. Beyond the open hut door Campbell could see the Leha trees swaying a little in the hot slow breeze. It seemed as though the whole night swayed like a dark blue veil. For a long time he didn't hear anything but the far-off screaming of some swamp beast on the kill. Then, sharp and cruel against the blue silence, a drum began to beat. It made Campbell's heart jerk. The sound wasn't loud, but it had a tight, hard quality of savagery, something as primal as the swamp and as alien, no matter how long a man lived with it. The drumming stopped, the second perhaps the third ritual prelude. The first must have wakened him. Campbell stared with narrow, dark eyes at the doorway. He'd been with the Kralins only two days this time, and he'd slept most of that. Now he realized that in spite of his exhaustion he had sensed something wrong in the village. Something was wrong, very wrong, when the drum beat that way in the sticky night. He pulled on his short black spaceman's boots and went out of the hut. No one moved in the village. Thatch rustled softly in the slow wind, and that was the only sign of life. Campbell turned into a path under the whispering Leha trees. He wore nothing but the tight black pants of his space garb and the hot wind lay on his skin like soft hands. He filled his lungs with it. It smelled of warm, still water and green growing things and freedom. Above all, freedom. 
This was one place where a man could still stand on his legs and feel human. The drumming started again, like a man's angry heart beating out of the indigo night. This time it didn't stop. Campbell shivered. The trees parted presently, showing a round, dark hummock. It was lit by the hot flare of burning leha pods. Sweet, oily smoke curled up into the branches. There was a sullen glint of water through the trees, but there were closer glints, brighter, fiercer, more deadly. The glinting eyes of men, silent men, standing in a circle around the hummock. There was a little man crouched on the mound in the center. His skin had the blue whiteness of skim milk. He wore a kilt of iridescent scales. His face was subtly reptilian, broad across the cheekbones and pointed below. A crest of brilliant feathers—they weren't really feathers, but that was as close as Campbell could get—started just above his brow ridges and ran clean down his spine to the waist. They were standing erect now, glowing in the firelight. He nursed a drum between his knees. It stopped being just a drum when he touched it. It was his own heart, singing and throbbing with the hate in it. Campbell stopped short of the circle. His nerves, still tight from his near-fatal brush with the space guard, stung with little flaring pains. He'd never seen anything like this before. The little man rocked slightly, looking up into the smoke. His eyes were half-closed. The drum was part of him and part of the indigo night. It was part of Campbell, beating in his blood. It was the heart of the swamp, sobbing with hate and a towering anger that was as naked and simple as Adam on the morning of creation. Campbell must have made some involuntary motion, because a man standing at the edge of the hummock turned his head and saw him. He was tall and slender, and his crest was pure white, a sign of age. He turned and came to Campbell, looking at him with opalescent eyes. The firelight lay the earthman's dark face in sharp relief, the lean, hard angles, the high-bridged nose that had been broken and not set straight, the bitter mouth. Campbell said, in pure liquid Venusian, What is it, father? The Kralin's eyes dropped to the earthman's naked breast. There was black hair on it and underneath the hair ran twisting, intricate lines of silver and deep blue, tattooed with exquisite skill. The old man's white crest nodded. Campbell turned and went back down the path. The wind and the leha trees, the hot blue night beat with the anger and the hate of the little man with the drum. Neither spoke until they were back in the hut. Campbell lit a smoky lamp, the old Kralin drew a long, slow breath. "'My almost son,' he said, "'this is the last time I can give you refuge. When you are able you must go and return no more.' Campbell stared at him. "'But, father, why?' The old man spread long blue-white hands. His voice was heavy. Because we, the Kralins, shall have ceased to be. 
Campbell didn't say anything for a minute. He sat down on the hide-frame cot and ran his fingers through his black hair. "'Tell me, father,' he said quietly, grimly. The Kralin's white crest rippled in the lamplight. "'It is not your fight.' Campbell got up. "'Look, you've saved my neck more times than I can count. You've accepted me as one of your own. I've been happier here than any—well, skip that. But don't say it isn't my fight.' The pale, triangular old face smiled, but the white crest shook. No. There is really no fight, only death. We're a dying tribe, a mere scrap of old Venus. What matter if we die now or later? Campbell lit a cigarette with quick, sharp motions. His voice was hard. Tell me, father. All and quick. Opalescent eyes met his. It is better not. I said, tell me. <sighs> Very well, the old man sighed. You would hear, after all. You remember the frontier town of Lahi? Remember it? Campbell's white teeth flashed. Every dirty stone in it, from the pumping conduits on up. Best place on three planets to fence hot stuff. He broke off, suddenly embarrassed. The Kralin said gently, That is your affair, my son. You've been away a long time. Lahi has changed. The Terra Venusian Coalition government has taken it for the administrative center of Tahara province. Campbell's eyes, at the mention of the coalition government, acquired a hot, hard brightness. He said, Go on. The old man's face was cut from marble, his voice stiff and distant. There have been men in the swamps. Now word has been sent us. It seems there is coal here, and oil, and certain minerals that men prize. They will drain the swamps for many miles and work them. Campbell let smoke out of his lungs very slowly. Yeah, and what becomes of you? The Kralin turned away and stood framed in the indigo square of the doorway. The distant drum sobbed and shouted. It was hot and yet the sweat turned cold on Campbell's body. The old man's voice was distant and throbbing and full of anger like the drum. Campbell had to strain to hear it. They will take us and place us in camps in the great cities. Small groups of us, so that we are divided and split. Many people will pay to see us, the strange remnants of old Venus. They will pay for our skills in the curing of Leshen skins and in the writing of quaint music and tattooing. We will grow rich. Campbell dropped the cigarette and ground it on the dirt floor. Knotted veins stood out on his forehead, and his face was cruel. The old man whispered, We will die first. It was a long time since anyone had spoken. The drumming had stopped, 
but the echo of it throbbed in Campbell's pulses. He looked at his spread, sinewy hands on his knees, and swallowed, because the veins of his neck were swollen and hurting. Presently he said, "'Couldn't you go further back into the swamps?' The old Kralin spoke without moving. He still stood in the doorway, watching the trees sway in the slow wind. The Nahali live there. Besides, there is no clean water and no earth for crops. We are not lizard-eaters. I've seen it happen, said Campbell, somberly, on Earth and Mars and Mercury and the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Little people driven from their homes, robbed of their way of life, exploited, and for the gaping idiots in the trade centers. Little people who didn't care about progress and making money, little people who only wanted to live and breathe and be let alone. He got up in a swift, savage rush and hurled a gourd of water, crashing into a corner, and sat down again. He was shivering. The old Kralin turned. Little people like you, my son? Campbell shrugged. Maybe. We'd worked our farm for three hundred years. My father didn't want to sell. They condemned it anyhow. It's under water now, and the dam runs a hell of a big bunch of factories. I'm sorry. Campbell looked up, and his face softened. I've never understood, he said. You people are the most law-abiding citizens I ever met. You don't like strangers, and yet I blunder in here, hot on the lamb and ugly as a swamp dragon, and you— He stopped. It was probably the excitement that was making his throat knot up like that. The smoke from the lamp stung his eyes. He blinked and bent to trim it. You were wounded, my son, and in trouble. Your quarrel with the police was none of ours. We would have helped anyone. And then, while you had fever and your guard was down, you showed that more than your body needed help. We gave you what we could. Yeah, said Campbell huskily. He didn't say it, but he knew well enough that what the Kralins had given him had kept him from blowing his top completely. Now the Kralins were going the way of the others. Straws swept before the great broom of progress. Nothing could stop it. Earth's empire surged out across the planets, building, bartering, crashing across time and custom and race to make money and the shining steel cage of efficiency. A cage wherein a sheep could live happily enough, well-fed and opulent. But Campbell wasn't a sheep. He tried it, and he couldn't bleat in tune. So he was a wolf now, alone and worrying the flock. Soon there wasn't going to be a place in the solar system where a man could stand on his own feet and breathe. He felt stifled. He got up and stood in the doorway, watching the trees stir in the hot indigo gloom. The trees would go. 
wells and mines, slag and soot and clattering machinery, and men in sweat-stained shirts laboring night and day to get, to grow, to produce. Campbell's mouth twisted, bitter and sardonic. He said softly, God help the unconstructive. The old Kralin murmured, What happened to those others, my son? Campbell's lean shoulders twitched. Some of them died, some of them submitted, the rest— He turned so suddenly that the old man flinched. Campbell's dark eyes had a hot light in them, and his face was sharply alive. The rest, he said evenly, went to Romany. He talked then, urgently, pacing the hut in nervous cat-like strides, trying to remember things he had heard and not been very much interested in at the time. When he was through, the Kralin said, "'It would be better, infinitely better, but—' He spread his long, pale hands, and his white crest drooped. "'But there is no time.' Government men will come within three days to take us, that was the time set, and since we will not go— Campbell thought of the things that had happened to other rebellious tribes. He felt sick, but he made his voice steady. We'll hope it's time, father. Romany is in an orbit around Venus now. I nearly crashed it coming in. I'm going to try, anyhow. If I don't, well, stall as long as you can. Remembering the drum and the way the men had looked, he didn't think that would be long. He pulled on a loose shirt of green spider silk, slung the belt of his heavy needle gun over one shoulder, and picked up his black tunic. He put his hand on the Kralin's shoulder and smiled. We'll take care of it, father. The old man's opalescent eyes were shadowed. I wish I could stop you. It's hopeless for us, and you are uh, hot, is that the word? Campbell grinned. Hot, he said, is the word. Blistering. The Coalition gets awfully mad when someone pulls their own hijacking stunt on them, but I'm used to it. It was beginning to get light outside, the old man said quietly. The gods go with you, my son. Campbell went out, thinking he'd need them. It was full day when he reached his hidden ship. A sleek, souped-up Fitz Southern that had the legs of almost anything in space. He paused briefly by the airlock, looking at the sultry green of Leha trees under a pearl-gray sky, the white mist lapping around his narrow waist. He spent a long time over his charts, feeding numbers to the calculators. When he got a setup that suited him, he took the Fitz Southern up on purring copters, angling out over the deep swamps. He felt better with the ship under his hands. The planetary patrol blanket was thin over the deep swamps, but it was vigilant. Campbell's nerves were tight. They got tighter as he came closer to the place where he was going to have to begin his loop over to the night side. 
He was just reaching for the rocket switch when the little red light started to flash on the indicator panel. Someone had a detector beam on him, and he was morally certain that the somebody was flying a patrol boat. There was one thing about the Venusian atmosphere. You couldn't see through it even with infrabeams at very long range. The intensity needle showed the patrol ship still far off, probably not suspicious yet, although stray craft were rare over the swamps. In a minute the copper would be calling for information, with his mass detectors giving the Fitz Southern a massage. Campbell didn't think he'd wait. He slammed in the drive rockets, holding them down till the tubes warmed. Even held down, they had plenty. The Fitz Southern climbed in a whipping spiral. The red light wavered, died, glowed again. The copper was pretty good with his beam. Campbell fed in more juice. The red light died again. But the patrol boat had all its beams out now, spread like a fishnet. The Fitz Southern struck another, lost it, struck again, and this time she didn't break out. Campbell felt the sudden racking jar all through him. Tractor beams, he said. You think so, buddy? The drive jets were really warming now. He shot it to them. The Fitz Southern hung for a fractional instant, her triple-braced hull shuddering so that Campbell's teeth rang together. Then she broke, blasting up right through the netted beams. Campbell jockeyed his port and starboard steering jets. The ship leaked and skittered wildly. The copper didn't have time to focus full power on her anywhere, and low power to the Fitz Southern was a nuisance and nothing more. Campbell went up over the patrol ship, veered off in the opposite direction from the one he intended to follow, hung in a tight spiral until he was sure he was clean, and then dived again. The patrol boat wasn't expecting him to come back. The pilot was concentrating on where Campbell had gone, not where he had been. Campbell grinned opened full throttle and went skittering over the curve of the planet to meet the night shadow rushing toward him. He didn't meet any more ships. He was way off the trade lanes and moving so fast that only blind luck could tag him. He hoped the patrol was hunting for him in force, back where they'd lost him. He hoped they'd hunt a long time. Presently he climbed, on slowed and muffled jets, out of the atmosphere. His black ship melted indistinguishably into the black shadow of the planet. He slowed still more, just balancing the Venus drag, and crawled out toward a spot marked on his astrogation chart. An outer patrol boat went by, too far off to bother about. Campbell lit a cigarette with nervous hands. It was only a quarter smoked when the object he'd been waiting for loomed up in space. His infrabeam showed it clearly. A round, plate-shaped mass about a mile in diameter, built of three tiers of spaceships. Hulks, ancient, rusty, pitted things that had died and not been decently buried, welded together in a solid mass by lengths of pipe let into their carcasses. Before, when he had seen it, 
Campbell had been in too much of a hurry to do more than curse it for getting in its way. Now he thought it was the most desolate, God-forsaken mass of junk that had ever made him wonder why people bothered to live at all. He touched the throttle, tempted to go back to the swamps. Then he thought of what was going to happen back there and took his hand away. "'Hell,' he said. "'I might as well look inside.' He didn't know anything about the internal setup of Romany, what made it tick and how. He knew Romany didn't love the Coalition, but whether they would run to harboring criminals was another thing. It wouldn't be strange if they had been given pictures of Roy Campbell and told to watch for him. Thinking of the size of the reward on him, Campbell wished he were not quite so famous. Romany reminded him of an old-fashioned circular mousetrap. Once inside, it wouldn't be easy to get out. "'Of all the platinum-plated saps,' he snarled suddenly, "'why am I sticking my neck out for a bunch of semi-human swamp-crawlers, anyhow?' He didn't answer that. The leading edge of Romany knifed toward him. There were lights in some of the hulks, mostly in the top layer. Campbell reached for the radio. He had to contact the big shots. No one else would give him what he needed. To do that, he had to walk right up to the front door and announce himself. After that... The manual listed the wavelength he wanted. He juggled the dials and verniers, wishing his hands wouldn't sweat. Spaceship Black Star calling Romany, calling Romany. His screen flashed, flickered, and cleared. Romany acknowledging. Who are you and what do you want? Campbell's screen showed him a youngish man, a taxel, he thought, from some Mercurian backwater. He was ebony black and handsome, and he looked as though the sight of Campbell affected him like stale beer. Campbell said, "'Cordial guy, aren't you? I'm Thomas Black, trader out of Terra, and I want to come aboard.' "'That requires permission.' "'Yeah? Okay. Connect me with the boss.' The taxel now looked as though he smelled something that had been dead a long time. "'Possibly you mean Iran Mock, the chief counselor?' "'Possibly,' admitted Campbell. "'I do.' If the rest of the gypsies were anything like this one, they sure had a hate for outsiders. Well, he didn't blame them. The screen blurred. It stayed that way while Campbell smoked three cigarettes and exhausted his excellent vocabulary. Then it cleared abruptly. Eron Mock sounded Martian, but the man pictured on the screen was no Martian. He was an Earthman with a face like a wedge of granite and a frame that was all gaunt bones and thrusting angles. His hair was thin, pale red and fuzzy. His mouth was thin. Even his eyes were thin, close slits of pale blue with no lashes. Campbell disliked him instantly. "'I'm Tradic,' said the Earthman. His voice was thin, with a sound in it like someone walking on cold gravel. Terran Overchief. Why do you wish to land, Mr. Black? 
I bring a message from the Kraden people of Venus. They need help. Tradex's eyes became, if possible, thinner and more pale. Help? Yes, help. Campbell was struck by a sudden suspicion. Something he caught flickering across Tradex's granite features when he said Kralin. He went on slowly. The Coalition is moving in on them. I understand you people of Romany help in cases like that. There was a small, tight silence. I'm sorry, said Tradek. There is nothing we can do. Campbell's dark face tightened. Why not? You helped the Shenyat people on Ganymede and the Drylanders on Mars. That's what Romany is, isn't it? A refuge for people like that? As a Lotnik, there's a lot you don't know. At this time, we cannot help anyone. Sorry, Black. Please clear ship. The screen went dead. Campbell stared at it with sultry eyes. Sorry? The hell you're sorry. What gives here, anyway? He thrust out an angry hand to the transmitter, and then, quite suddenly, the Taxel was looking at him out of the screen. The hostile look was gone. Anger replaced it, but not anger at Campbell. The Taxel said in a low, rapid voice, "'You're not lying about coming from the Kralins?' "'No, no, I'm not lying.' He opened his shirt to show the tattoo. "'The dirty scut! "'Mr. Black, clear ship and then make contact with one of the outer hulks on the lowest tier.' You'll find emergency hatchways in some of the pipes. Come inside and wait. His dark eyes had a savage glitter. There are some of us, Mr. Black, who still consider Romany a refuge. Campbell cleared ship. His nerves were singing in little tight jerks. He stepped into something here, something big and ugly. There had been a certain ring in the Taxel's voice. The thin, gravelly Mr. Tradick had something on his mind, too. Something important about Kralins. Why Kralins, of all the unimportant people on Venus? Trouble on Romany. Romany, the gypsy world, the solar system's stepchild. Strictly a family affair. What business did a public enemy with a low number and a high valuation have mixing into that? Then he thought of the drum beating in the indigo night, and an old man watching the Lehigh trees stir in a slow, hot wind. Roy Campbell called himself a short, bitter name and sighed, and reached lean brown hands for the controls. Presently, in the infrafield, he made out an ancient crub freighter on the edge of the lowest level, connected to companion wrecks by sections of twelve-foot pipe. There was a hatch in one of the pipes with a hand-wheel. The Fitz Southern glided with exquisite daintiness to the pipe, touched it gently, threw out her magnetic grapples and suction flanges, and hung there. The airlock exactly covered the hatchway. End of Part 1